0: Hi, welcome back and happy Thursday. I don't want to spend too much time talking about Anchor and how you should absolutely buy a bag of coffee from Strive with the code endorphins for 10% off your order, because I don't want to keep you in suspense for too long for this really cool story I'm about to share with you all. So I'll keep it brief. All right. Let's get into the episode. Patrick and I met at WashU about two years ago, and I learned for the first time that he trained to become a Buddhist monk the senior year of his high school. I was immediately shocked, blown away. I've never heard of someone becoming a Buddhist monk who is so young, and I felt like this would have been a perfect opportunity to talk about it on the podcast. So, we talked about what his experience was like, how that experience shaped his perspective on. Meditation and its benefits. And we also caught up now to see how he's doing. Without further ado, let's get into it. Hey, Patrick, I am so excited to talk about your really unique experience in high school. Um, Spoiler alert, this title of this episode probably is informing my listeners that you were a Buddhist monk in high school, but um, if people weren't catching on to that, this is what we're going to be talking about today. So can we start from like the beginning? How did how did you even decide to become a Buddhist monk in high school?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, you know, thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, I love talking about this experience. Uh, so this was during my senior year of high school and kind of some background. I'm, I'm Thai. Uh, both of my parents are from Bangkok and that's where, you know, Buddhism is like, majority religion and kind of to become a monk is a big tradition within thailand but it like never really carried over into the states and i also have an older brother who like did this like ceremony as well as a side note but basically the whole point of the kind of tradition to become a monk is so that you kind of give uh, good luck to your current life and your next life, uh, since reincarnation is a big thing. Uh, but not only to yourself, but to your parents and your family and kind of those who you love. And, um, you know, I, I, I kind of came to this, um, I guess, option to do it or not, like the very beginning of my senior year. And my parents had brought it up and said, you know, your brother did it. 10 years ago, because he, he's quite a bit older than me. And at the time I was really reluctant just because I was a senior in high school and I was young. And I just wanted to have fun to be frank. And they, they like made me think about it, but they never really pressured me into it because they felt as if, if they were to force me to do it, then it wouldn't hold the value that it should, if that makes sense.
0: Right. That makes a lot of sense. And Let's backtrack just a bit. So your parents came to the United States from Thailand. Yes. And you grew up in the Buddhist culture. So can you talk a little bit about what that cultural exposure was like growing up Buddhist and then making that transition to commit yourself to becoming a monk?
1: Sure. Um yeah, I could like pinpoint a couple examples of things that like I did growing up um, that were just kind of tradition through the family. We'd go to like the temple on our birthdays and just like pray and give food to the monks. And also we would spend our like New Year's uh, celebration there. It's actually pretty cool at the temple during New Year's. Like tons of people, hundreds of people come and they have a bunch of tents that just set up food and everyone is just like celebrating the New Year and you know they wish each other like good health and wealth and, you know, all that Shazam. Um, but it was like, it was pretty normal for me to go to the temple just whenever, like it didn't have to even be a birthday or New Year's. Um, sometimes my mom would just, you know, suggest that we go on a weekend. So I like grew up seeing those monks uh, that I eventually lived with. It was pretty interesting because, you know, I would only see those monks for maybe like an hour, two hours at a time. But during this, like, I guess, uh, my time at the t- temple, it was like, I was seeing them, you know, every day for hours on end doing the same thing that they're doing. And it was pretty different. Cause when you go to the temple, it's like, something's always happening, but you don't realize that, you know, once you leave, the monks are just on their own to do their own thing. So I had like a lot of fun, just like chatting with different monks about their journeys there and kind of what made them want to become a monk. But that's just kind of, like, I guess how the temple played in my uh, upbringing.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about what exactly the Buddhist philosophy is? And I've studied Buddhism, but I can't really speak to it because even though I've studied it, sometimes I think my memory fails me. So I don't want to misquote or, or not explain in the right way exactly what Buddhism is. And I know there are lots of ties uh, to Buddhism and meditation and mindfulness and yoga. But since you grew up in this, in this culture and this philosophy and religion, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about some of like those foundational principles behind Buddhism and how those values transferred to your life.
1: Sure. So I guess like, okay, so I was a novice monk and that means like I kind of lived by 10 tenets. Um, Whereas if you were like a monk that's dedicated for life, you would live by by, like hundreds. But in the sense of like Buddhism itself, I think my parents did a pretty good job of kind of uh, framing it in a way that I didn't really think about it as like a a Buddhist uh, lifestyle. It was more ingrained into how to be a good person. But I'm sure the things that they taught me kind of overlap uh, the Buddhist like philosophy. Uh, Some things are just like, I guess you probably have heard, you know, just Trying to be like at peace with yourself and not care about those like materialistic things and always be grateful for the things you have. And I think those things are really easy to say until a kid who's, you know, 10 or 12, but it's it's kind of hard to solidify into them and you know make sure that they actually live by those values. So It's, you know, my parents, I would definitely say, are more, way more religious than I am. I think my mom goes to the temple like every week almost and she tries to help some monk as much as possible. So she might follow the Buddhism like philosophy way more than I do. But I feel like if it makes sense through what my parents have taught me, I kind of also follow them. But I would say like the key ones are just to, you know, be grateful for the things that I have, but also respect. Um, everyone around me and just try not to get caught up in those like really little things uh, in life that kind of tend to tick you off really easily because it's just like not really worth it.
0: Yeah. And those values or foundational principles behind Buddhism really just seem to be like ways to be a good person. So that's exactly what the philosophy is stating and is asking of those who practice it. What actions can you take to ensure that you're being grateful and you're you're living your life with a, you know, a strong moral compass.
1: Yeah. I mean, I myself have like personal self-assessments throughout the years. It's easy to kind of look at somebody who's achieved a lot or has a lot and say like, you know, I wish I had that, that, or I wish I was in their position. But as you know, there's always the other end where somebody has it worse. And there are things in life that, you know, you just can't replace. And I think that's a big thing to realize, uh, specifically, like, family. Like, for example, you know, like, my brother and I were, I mentioned before, like, 10 years apart. And being that much time apart, there's bound to be conflict. We just, like, had a lot of arguments all the time. And there was this one time where we just got, like, into a huge argument. And, um, you know, you feel, like, really angry at the time, but then you kind of realize that, you know, your family is the only kind of constant in your life that you can rely on so you have to make sure that you know you don't act on emotion and you kind of realize like i said those people can't be replaced and just some other things you know just whenever you wake up just looking around you and just being blessed that you have a, a roof over your head and you have food to eat or just really basic things you can do but like i said of course there's so many temptations out in the world there's always that next new thing especially in the era we live in technology is always evolving and you always want you know that new shiny thing that you know the most expensive thing and it may bring you happiness for I don't know a couple seconds couple minutes hours a month but that's not the thing you're going to be remembering when you're you know 80 and I try to keep that in mind it's the memories I make with the people that are around me that I'm going to remember, not, you know, the new iPhone that's coming out.
0: Yeah. So moving away from a sense of materialism and being tempted by wanting those materialistic objects or items. And you're right. We live in such a fast paced age, especially with technology. There's always the new iPhone. There's always the new MacBook computer, the new this, the new that. So it's, it can be really hard to stay grounded in the present moment when you're constantly striving for something else, something more. When that's constantly what's being fed to us in society, how do you slow down and just focus on that present moment?
1: Sure. So, I mean, I guess this kind of like builds into my like father's journey in a sense, because he came to the States when he was about 16 and he like, he was started, he started working in Bangkok when he was like 13 and he, you know, he didn't have much when he started, you know, kind of, I guess, live the American dream in a sense where he became, you know, successful enough to support his family and, you know, send me to school where I, where I got in. And, you know, I'm really blessed for that. Um, but kind of ingrained the goal uh, in my mind that I wanted to do the same for my kids, but not in a way that I would be leveraging, like, I don't know, like a trust fund or anything. I, I wanted to kind of bring it in on myself and create that wealth for myself so I could, You know, give my kids the equal, if not equal more opportunity than my dad has given me. And that's a really big driving factor for me because you know, when I want that new thing that's you know, a thousand dollars or five hundred dollars, I always think that thousand dollars can be saved for the future. And you know, even though it's you know five hundred bucks, it can mean the difference later on in the future. And I'm you know, I'm currently in that mindset where I need to save as much as possible. Right now, I have the goal of trying to get a house before twenty-five, and that's just something I feel like I need to do. And it really helps me not, you know, get trapped into that marketing of this is faster, this is better. Um, it's more investing in your future, and it you know it plays two parts. It helps me in my future, but it also me it also helps me not you know go into that materialistic mindset of really short kind of happiness um, and just trying to, you know, as they say, flex the item.
0: Yeah. And everything that you're describing requires a lot of discipline to say, I'm not going to spend a lot of my money right now to get this new shiny object that's really attractive and tempting. I'm going to save it because I have this long-term goal and I'm going to work towards that. That's really hard to stay that disciplined. And I have a hunch that becoming a Buddhist monk helped to instill some of those values in you. But I'd love to hear a bit more about um, once you had decided that you were going to become a monk, what that process was like.
1: Sure. Um, and also I, I'd like to put in a side note, like I feel like the timing was perfect uh, because I was 17 and I feel like that's a like a shifting moment in people's life, you know, They're starting to apply to colleges, get into colleges. um, And they want a lot. They expect a lot out of their future. They want to be up to date, uh, especially going into like a new environment. Um, But I'm glad that my experience had happened at that moment because I feel like if it hadn't happened um, at that moment and later on in my life, then I would have definitely been more into like buying items and stuff like that. But yeah, in terms of kind of getting into being an actual monk. So like I said, I kind of was prompted with the question at the beginning of my senior year. And my mom handed me scripture that she had gotten from the monks at the temple. And she said, you know, if you want to go through with this process, you're going to have to memorize these. Um, and this wasn't like, like I can understand Thai and speak a little bit, but this wasn't like normal Thai. It was like scripture ties.
0: So your mom was giving you these scriptures. Yeah. And she was saying, okay, if you want to become a monk, you have to memorize these scriptures that were in the language of Thai.
1: It was like a dialect of Thai.
0: So yeah. that was challenging for you. You never that really encountered that.
1: Was, yeah, that was challenging because it was kind of like trying to learn a language without anyone translating it, if that makes sense. So it's all based off sound. But I have to say some of these like lines are lines that the monks, like, repeat whenever we go to the temple during, like, a lunch ceremony uh, to bless the people there. So I was familiar with some of the lines, but some of them I just had to go off just, um, I guess, like, just listening to it. What
0: did those scriptures, what were they saying?
1: Uh, you, you know, I still, like, to this day, I don't even know, but I, like, I think it's just to, like, bless you and, like, because like my parents always told me that a certain line in these scriptures, like if you're ever feeling stressed, just like repeat it to yourself. And even in high school, I would have like on my wall. It was just a piece of paper that I wrote it down and I, like taped it. Um, so when I was feeling stressed or like I had a, like an exam the next day, I would I would repeat it to myself.
0: So it was like, like a mantra for you.
1: Yeah, in a sense.
0: That's so. That's really nice. Um, yeah. And so these scriptures were in this dialect of Thai. And how long did you have to memorize them, learn them, and then recite them?
1: Yeah, so I took about two or three months uh, on my own to just memorize them. And then kind of a month leading up to the actual ceremony, I would go into the temple and just practice how everything would go down. So where I would walk, how I would sit, um, when I would recite the scripture, what would happen next. And, you know, that's a little bit scary uh, just because when I was practicing the scripture, it wasn't like I was practicing in a mirror. I actually performed it in front of like a fellow mom. So he would critique me on like my pronunciation and, you know, how like the pace I was going at. And of course, I got nervous because he's been doing this you know forever. Um, but yeah, and you your
0: know, journey was, let's say, could we break it down into two different phases? So the first sure. phase was those few months where you were learning the scriptures, you're studying the dialect of Thai. And then the second phase is where you read those scriptures in the temple to the Buddhist monks and I guess become ordained to become yeah. monk?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, first stage was done. Uh, second stage uh, was like the ceremony day. On that day, you know, I showed up to the temple uh, in all white. It's just like a symbol of like purity. And then they shaved off all, all my head and my eyebrows, all my hair and my eyebrows. Uh, And that's just to represent, like, I guess the closest you can get to when you were born, kind of like a baby, so that you're in a fresh body, Uh, and the journey you're about to take on uh, kind of makes you a new person. Uh, So then, after they shaved off all my hair, we waited till a lot of people came, and I went into the it's called Bod in Thai, but it's like the mini temple in a sense. And I recited, you know, all the scripture it was in front of like 200 people, which was you know, I didn't expect that many people, but then they, they robed me in all the orange. And after that, uh, people would come up and basically ask for my blessing. Um, but then after that day they all left and I lived at the temple for the remainder of my spring break.
0: So the second half of the time of you becoming a monk where you had done the ceremony, you shaved your head, your eyebrows, performed and you were a Buddhist monk that was how long did that span like a few weeks and the end of your senior year
1: so it was just my spring break because it was in the middle of my senior year so if I remember high school spring break like a week or two weeks gotcha. um, so that yeah. first
0: phase the studying phase let's say we're a few months from yeah. the beginning to the middle of your senior year and during that phase, you were studying the scriptures. Did you also have to learn more about the philosophy of Buddhism? I know there are certain term, there's certain terminology like the Eightfold Path, Nirvana, um, enlightenment, yeah. lots of buzzwords within Buddhism that I've kind of picked up over the course of the past few years. Um, but was that something you were also learning while studying the scriptures or did you just kind of have a knowledge of that before any of this had started?
1: I kind of had a knowledge of it before it started. And the only thing that I kind of also picked up on was just like do's and don'ts in a sense. So like, like, for example, when I became a monk, I wouldn't be able to be touched by like females or I can't touch them. Like my mom, um, she couldn't give me a hug and my mom can't directly give me an item so it can't be um, passed from hand to hand I would have to like put down a cloth and she would have to put the item on a cloth and then I would have to like pull it to me some other things would just you know they warned me it would be no eating after noon so then we'd have to do all our eating during the lunch ceremony which ends at 12 30 and the rest of the day you can't um some others are just You have to be sitting down when you're eating. You can't be walking around. So those were just like small things that I had to learn and be aware of before I got into the process. So I didn't like break any rules or anything.
0: So when you had done the ceremony and for the remainder of your spring break, you were a Buddhist monk. What was a day in the life? What was it like from the time you woke up to the time you went to bed being a Buddhist monk in the temple?
1: So I would wake up at around 6 a.m., And then we would, all the monks uh, would go to like that mini temple I referenced earlier and all the lights would be off, but we would start um, with, they would, they gave me like a scripture book and we would read that for about 45 minutes. um, And afterwards we would meditate for 45 minutes. And that meditation was just, you know, pure silence, all of us in a room, uh, eyes closed. And that was like pretty difficult. And then afterwards you can choose to eat, you know, some breakfast if you want.
0: So the morning was wake up, meditate, then have breakfast.
1: Yes. Yeah. Were you
0: like hungry when you woke up? Did did the meditation help with the hunger? Uh, what was that like?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I personally, I don't get hungry when I'm like wake up in the morning. The biggest thing, I guess like the biggest challenge was just staying still for 45 minutes during the meditation. Because I feel like in the morning, like, You kind of want to move around and like stretch, you know, get the blood going. So just to wake up and then kind of sit back down and try to meditate was a little bit difficult. And it's not like you're in a comfortable sitting position either. It's not like crisscross applesauce. Your legs are kind of folded over one another, which, you know, kind of leads to some back pain, but you kind of get used to it. So no, yeah, hunger wasn't like an issue or anything.
0: So after you had done that 45 minute meditation, you had your breakfast and what came next?
1: So then after that, you, most monks would have studied like scripture, but I decided to make the most use of my time would be to kind of talk to, I was like, I had kind of like a mentor monk in a sense. I would talk to him about, you know, kind of like how he got into the monk process and he would teach me some things. So like, just like how to retie my robe. the cloth itself is like a pretty large cloth, and to just learn how to tie correctly so that it doesn't fall off is like pretty necessary. And it took me maybe like a, a like couple of days to learn it correctly. He also just, you know, he just like talked to me, which was nice. Um, the other monks would just read scripture, but there, I guess it wasn't that much time until like the lunch ceremony. So, so then the-
0: breakfast and then the afternoon you have a, a break and then you have the lunch ceremony that happens in the afternoon. Yeah. What happens in the lunch ceremony?
1: Yeah, so then um, this is when like in a, like not in con anyway, but normal people would come to the temple and they would bring food for us as our lunch. We would kind of read scripture to them and bless them and their food. And all the men would get in the line. Uh, so the way like we're arranged is it's we're kind of on like a podium um, where we can sit and we have a metal bowl where all our food goes so all the men would line up and they would pass the food down the aisle. It would kind of be like a seniority kind of thing. So I was at the end of the line, but remember it can only be men because women cannot directly like give uh, to monks. Uh, So then, you know, we would scoop our food into the bowl and then afterwards we would, they would, or like the head monk would, chant some more scripture and then afterwards we would get about 30 minutes to eat in that 30 minutes you're kind of just like scarfing down as much as possible because that's pretty much all the food you're going to get for the rest of the day
0: so Uh, when you have lunch and you have the food then you're done eating for the rest of the day are you fasting at night
1: yeah so there's no more eating
0: hunger is a huge temptation how did you try to not let the hunger get to you if it was at night and you were exhausted and really hungry but you knew you just had to do the same routine the next day and the day after that
1: I mean I, I definitely think it helps that you're not the only one that's kind of fasting in a sense because I know like you know when like people try to diet and whatnot it feel like they're on the journey on their own and you have that temptation to kind of you know get a snack or something but since this was like the norm it felt kind of natural and yeah i got hungry at times like at night but i would just drink some water or something and it just it just helped that you know you actually get a lot to eat during lunch like it wasn't a normal proportion of food it was just it was almost in a sense like a buffet because you get a scoop at however much of whatever food you want that was brought that day um so and and also on top of that like You would sleep kind of early since you'd have to be up at six the next day. Um, I personally, like my cravings come like late at night, I know like midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. So I I feel like hunger wasn't that much of a battle as you would think it is.
0: So just to recap, your day would start at 6 a.m., have a 45-minute morning meditation. Then you would have breakfast. Then there would be that down period of time where it seems like you had a lot of fun with your mentor monk. And then it would be the lunch ceremony where people would come and bring you gifts and food and whatnot. And then you would, um, basically towards the end of the day you were, you were done eating and the day would just start over again.
1: Well, um, so then after you would have some more time until the evening ceremony, um, and the evening ceremony isn't like, nobody comes for that. It's just, amongst themselves. And we would go back to that kind of mini temple building. And that's when we would meditate for an hour and a half straight. So that was a little bit more challenging than the morning because the morning was 45 minutes of scripture, 45 minutes meditation, whereas nighttime was just a straight hour and a half um, of meditation. So
0: uh, you're meditating over two hours every day for the entirety of your senior year spring break.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Did you find that challenging?
1: Yeah, definitely, because You know, I would, I would definitely get distracted sometimes just hearing birds outside or just random noises. I feel like, you know, when you go about your normal day, you're trying to take in as much information as possible and be responsive to your environment. Whereas when you're meditating, you know, in the temple, it's really about just forgetting about everything and trying to clear your mind as much as possible. And it's hard to turn off that instinct of, you know, hearing something and responding to it or thinking about something that you have to do. And something that, you know, really helped me that I don't know you could try maybe is that one of the monks told me that I should just think of my breath as like a sweeper. And when I breathe in through my nose, it goes into my head and just sweeps out all my thoughts, collects it. And then I would blow that breath out and take the thoughts with it. So yeah, you know, an hour and a half is challenging. I think, it would have helped had I started meditating before this whole process, just a couple of minutes a day, um, getting thrown into that kind of, um, I guess like schedule is definitely difficult, but you, I, I try to work on it as much as possible. Like, even if I got distracted, I would try to focus myself up again. And eventually the hour and a half went by pretty fast But I remember this one night specifically after the hour and a half meditation, the head monk decided that he wanted us to walk around the temple. And I think we did about seven times and he wanted us to counter steps. In the end, he was trying to ask, like, how many steps did you take? It was to kind of hone in to your ability to focus about one thing, because Counting your steps can be a really boring thing. When you're doing it in a circle, um, it's easy to get distracted, especially when there are other monks around. Unfortunately, at the end, a lot of us had different numbers that were very skewed. So clearly a lot of us lost our focus. Um, I'll admit I did lose my focus sometimes. And I try to like, I guess, like backtrack about like how many steps I lose focus at, but his, uh, I guess like his lesson at the end of that night was just, you know, you have the ability to focus on something if you want to, but, you know, if you get distracted, you should try to always re hone in on what your, the objective is. Um, and you know, our objective was to count the steps, which is a pretty easy objective, but people get bored, you know, attention spans are short and it's hard to just maintain that focus. So I think he was trying to make the point that you can do it. You just need to really, really put yourself into it.
0: I, I really love first, like the imagery about meditation of having the thoughts in your inhale, sweep out the thoughts in your head. And then on your exhale, just kind of like this cleansing process. And I mean, when I think of meditation, I think of focusing on the breath and um, using the breath as kind of that anchor to always come back to whenever a thought passes by, recognizing what the thought is, not really attaching judgment, just seeing it go by and not really attaching an emotional response to it and letting it go. And I think like that imagery of the the sweeper really aligns with that. And I feel like this is the perfect transition to talk a little bit more about your journey with meditation because you clearly were meditating a lot every single day. That's a hard thing to do. And I love how you talked about meditation as kind of a tool to, hone in on your ability to focus because i think when we think about meditation we we associate meditation and mindfulness with a tool to ease anxiety which i think it definitely does but i love this idea of talking about meditating as a way to become more focused so i'd love to you know hear if that practice of meditation that rigorous daily practice had any physiological or psychological effects that you began to notice shortly after you had adopted that practice?
1: Yeah. Uh, after the experience, I was able to kind of not get as aggravated as things, especially being a senior in high school, you, there's a lot of things going on. I'm sure you're aware of, you know, applications Uh, just prom going on. You're trying to figure out where you're going to go for the next couple of years. It's just really stressful. But after my experience, I felt that it was really easy for me to relax and realize everything's going to be okay. And in terms of meditation, I don't know if you guys had silent sustained reading SSR during homeroom in high school still, but I did Uh, it was like 15 minutes at the beginning of fourth period or something where you would just like read, but I would take that time to meditate myself instead of reading, which was, I feel more beneficial to myself. There were things that had immediate impact. Like I said, just being able to forget, uh, really small things that would take me off. So if I did bad on a quiz, normally that would have been something that I would have thought about for one or two days. But then afterwards, I would be able to just take it as it is, process information, try to move on from it and learn from it. Uh, Just like cutting out all the negativity, of feeling that I failed myself or I didn't try hard enough because deep down inside, I know I did try hard enough. It was just that before I wasn't pleased with my results and I would take it out on myself. Whereas afterwards, I would be able to say, you know, you tried your best. Uh, it, it wasn't what you expected, but it's time to move on because there's nothing you can do. I kind of lost the like schedule to meditate, uh, but I need to mention that I was a competitive swimmer in high school and it was really easy to connect the two. Uh, and what I mean by that is that when I went to the pool, uh, I would just try to focus on forgetting what had happened throughout that day and just focus on my swimming and swimming kind of became my meditation equivalent in a sense, because, you know, I'm staring at that blue T line at the bottom of the floor for two, three hours every day. And there's a lot of time to think. And I used to think a lot during swim practices about what kind of homework I had tests coming up, things I needed to do but eventually it just became me and that blue line. And I was really able to just clear my thoughts and feel at peace at the pool. Uh, and I think that I was able to do that because after meditating at the temple, it showed me that I had the ability to forget things and relax. And I, I didn't think that was possible before, but I'm glad I was able to kind of connect it to my swim practice.
0: I'm so happy you drew the parallel between the effects of meditation and being a competitive athlete in high school or middle school or or whatever it is. Um, I was a rower in high school. So it was also a a water sport because you're on the river rowing a boat. Um, But I felt similarly. I think when you go to practice, whatever sport you're, you're doing, it's a chance for you to leave Everything that happened in the day behind and really be present in that moment and focus on your performance. And I can't speak to swimming because I'm not a good swimmer at all. So I can never actually be like a competitive swimmer, but at least with rowing, a lot of it is focusing on breath with movement. So every time you take a stroke, you're inhaling, you're exhaling. It's very um, it's very rhythmic and very uh you have to have a very strong sense of coordination between your breath and your body. And that, like you said, is a form of meditation. It it kind of calms you down when you're physically feeling so much pain from the sport that you're engaging in. If you can focus on your breath and not let your mind wander to the homework that you have to do that night or the upcoming exams or the stress in your friend group or whatever it may be, it can really be a special moment to just get kind of lost in the flow. And I actually do have an episode That's coming up that's gonna talk about flow and mindfulness because there's a lot of intersection between flow and flow psychology. Um, But I think there's also a lot of of overlap between the two. And one last thing that I wanna say is I really liked how you talked about examples of stressors being your homework or your exam schedule or going to prom or trying to apply to college because most of the people listening on this podcast our recent college graduates are still in college or maybe in high school. And those are our day-to-day stresses. Granted, things happen in life that you can't predict. And the one constant thing in life is change. So people can experience, you know, varying degrees of suffering and stressful situations in their life. But baseline, I would say for our age group is exams and school and friends and social life and all of that. So I totally re- agree with you. Meditation can really help just ease those smaller day-to-day anxieties.
1: Yeah, and I wish more people would realize that it doesn't need to be sitting down and closing your eyes trying to meditate in order to find peace. There's definitely a multitude of activities you can do, whatever it makes you feel comfortable. As long as you dedicate yourself to it and you feel you know, relaxed and it's something that you can really focus on, I think that's a good way to kind of start trying to find that inner peace that you, that everyone strives to get. Um, But I think, you know, meditation could be a good way to start. It's, it might not be for everyone, but if you find something else that kind of you think fits the criteria to help you achieve that, then that's something you should definitely keep in your life and do consistently.
0: And you definitely were meditating finding that inner peace very consistently the spring break of your senior year of high school while you were a monk. What happened once you graduated from being a monk or decided you weren't going to continue with that? And then coming to college at WashU, like, have you kept up your meditation practice?
1: Yeah. So after my experience as a monk, I ended up meditating almost every day throughout my senior year and throughout the summer. Uh, and this was really easy. I think it was just kind of something that I like to do, but it also helped that I was still going to the temple after my experience. It kind of reminded me of my experience and the things that I learned there. However, when I went to college, I tried to find a group that was similar to the experience I had back at home, which would have been the TSA or the Thai Student Association. And I had read that they took... Uh, trips to the temple, um, I think monthly. And the first one that I went to it, it was not at all what I expected. I thought we would be able to go into the same type of meditation room or building, uh, and kind of have time to ourselves. But instead it was more of a cultural exchange in a sense where they just had Thai food and you could pay to kind of try different foods So that, I feel like that led to the downfall of my personal meditation, but that's not to say that there aren't times where I still get stressed and I just take 10 to 15 minutes to myself to close my eyes, uh, take a pause, a deep breath, and just realize that I can tackle these things that I feel stressed about as long as I focus up and don't get overwhelmed with what if this bad thing happens? Because you can always be thinking the other way. What if it turns out well, what if it turns out good? And a lot of people don't think that way. They always think, well, what if I do bad? Or, you know, what if I forget something, but no, I feel like many people don't really think what if I kill it? What if I do the best out of everyone? And that's, I feel like that's a good mindset to have. It might be difficult to picture yourself uh, doing that because it is normal for a lot of people to think about the consequences or, the negative effects in the future and that's what builds fear but if you're able to take like i said 10-15 minutes as i do and just try to think of a positive image or outcome then it really helps you get over that stress hump and just tackle the task at hand
0: definitely and i think it's a really great point that you brought up saying that you don't have to meditate two hours every day to reap the benefits of what meditation has to offer I think, as you mentioned, it's more about taking a pause and having the self-awareness to know when you're feeling overwhelmed, taking that pause, thinking more positive thoughts because at the end of the day, the thoughts that you think that you feed into your mind, um, you know, it, it shapes the, your perspective and your mood and that can really play a huge role into your own physical and mental health. So trying to be cognizant of, the negative thoughts that come into your mind and trying to reframe them into something a bit more positive sounds like that's kind of what you do whenever you're feeling a bit overwhelmed or stressed or anxious
1: yeah that's exactly it
0: i think that's so important and um i just do, like do you feel like because you were a monk it's easier for you to make those cognitive reframes do you feel like because you've gone through that extensive training and had a very strong community through that process it feels a bit easier for you to take that pause and just think happier thoughts and, and conquer that fear.
1: I definitely think it's easier for me, but at times I can get out of touch with it. Uh, But whenever I go home, I try to go to the temple and it's to the point where I feel like I have a special connection to the temple. Whenever I pray there now, it really, there's this like, Feeling I get around my body whenever I'm in the temple that I meditated at, and I just close my eyes. I feel really connected to just the area around me. And I feel like that's a good reset for myself and my mind for whenever I go back to college. That's why I try to come back as much as possible from college because I know I can't get that re- hard reset in college. But it's really nice when I can come home and just go to the temple realize that I need this reset and just meditate as, as long as I need to, you know, my mom doesn't mind me spending time there. Um, so it's nice. Uh, and it makes it easier to kind of, I guess, focus up again.
0: And if you could boil down your experience, you know, that the entirety of your senior year, really studying to become a monk and then becoming a Buddhist monk, what were you know, the top three lessons that you learned, doesn't have to be three, but what were some real key um, realizations that you taken away from that experience and that you hope to continue to implement in your life moving forward?
1: Sure. I think the biggest one for sure is definitely the materialistic stuff. Like I said, it's easy to get caught up in the new thing, but I realized at my time at the temple, You know, just turning off my phone, being in the present is really what matters. On top of that, I also have a greater respect for my family and just all the things they do for me because they were supporting me throughout my experience there. They came to visit me at the temple and, you know, make sure that I was fine and I was okay, even though it's just during the spring break and I was only a couple minutes away from home. But... Family and just not being caught up in those small new things um, were kind of the biggest takeaways. I feel like it's really helped me go about college in in a different way, trying not to impress people with the things I wear or the things I have, but more of the person I am. Now I know for sure that my number one value in life is my family, and I'll always kind of support my family no matter what. They're by my side. And I would give basically anything up for them.
0: That's so wonderful, and I love how you you're able to kind of understand like what your most important values are. Because at the end of the day, our actions. I believe that leading a fulfilling life is when your actions really align with your values, and you're very aware of what your values are. And they can change, um, but I, I do think that you derive a sense of purpose from acting with intention and aligning your actions and your thoughts and your, um, your words with what you believe in. Well, Patrick, it was so wonderful to have you as a guest on the podcast today. Before we go, I do have one question that I ask everyone I bring on to Everyday Endorphins, and it really aligns with the name of this podcast. Um, so what is something that brings you endorphins every day?
1: I think something that brings me endorphins, honestly, is talking to my dad. And that's because, you know, he was a pretty strict dad when I was growing up and he held like high standards for me to do well in school. And I, I took it the wrong way as a young person. I, I didn't realize, I, I always thought, you know, he, he doesn't want me to have fun. He doesn't want me to have friends, but it was more of him looking out for me and making sure that, I'm building discipline uh, so that I could, you know, achieve the things that I want to achieve later in life. And now that we have a more of an understanding of each other of what's expected of each other and the things that I want to accomplish and what I can and cannot do. And that really came in high school uh, where we had a conversation. I don't want to go too deep into that conversation, but we came to an understanding where he only expects me to try my best. And that's also something that I kind of live by. I can't feel sorry for myself if I try my best, right? Uh, Because I know I couldn't have done any better. And just talking to him every day, I feel like I learned something new and I feel like he's always there for me now instead of he, you know, he, he doesn't want me to have friends or anything. It was really, he's looking out for me. So I'm happy that we have that relationship and, you know, just talking to him is just, it always makes me happy.